Thank you for watching this message from the Bridge Church. Our mission here is to be a church for Christ, for community, and for the city. You're watching a message from our series called Messy Church. We're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And if this message has impacted you in any way, please let us know by emailing us at storiesatthebridgeilm.com. Thank you for watching, and God bless you. Good morning, Bridge Church. Good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, <clears throat> you know, here at the Bridge Church, we, uh, we have a, a strong conviction and, and a belief that, that God has put us here um, in, in the city of Wilmington, and, and for one of those reasons is to develop and to build healthy families. And as we talked about last week, uh, healthy families typically begin with healthy fathers that are following the Lord. And so today, I want to say a special happy Father's Day to those of you dads out there. Um, yeah, yeah you, can, you can cheer for them, platform. Um, so happy Father's Day to you. I also want to mention that while some of us are here and celebrating that uh, with our fathers, there are many of you who are without your fathers today for any number of reasons. Um, and so today, while though it can be a celebratory day, it can also be a somber or even a saddened day for you. And so um, I want you to know that, that our hearts are also with you um, if, if that is you. And if that is you, I also want to um, call and redirect your attention to the Father, the, the Father that leaves nobody fatherless, uh, the one that we will talk about today, the one that has come, the one that loves unconditionally, uh, and, and the one that has called you to himself. Um, so let's go ahead and jump in. First Corinthians chapter 11 is where we will be. Um, before we, we really get there, I do have a question for you. Has anyone ever turned their nose up to you? Right? You, you guys know what I mean? Like literally turned their nose up at you. Right? Has, has anyone ever experienced that? Um, for some of you, maybe that was back in middle school, high school days, uh, not to bring back so many bad memories for some of you. Um, maybe, maybe someone's done it to you. Maybe you've done that to somebody else. Right? You, you saw someone coming in, you just kind of turned your nose up at them and you know, you just didn't want anything to do with them. Oftentimes, the way that this kind of looks is, you know, you walk into a room and people look at you and they just kind of, eh, and then they, they turn and just walk the other direction, right? And, and, the, and what they're saying with their body language, and sometimes they might actually say it, is that you're not worth my time. I am better than you, right? They're, they're pointing their nose toward the air, puffing themselves up as a way of saying that I'm more important than you are. Well, the Corinthians and the church at Corinth, there, was, there were a lot of divisions there amongst the people, and these divisions had become so bad that it was now affecting their worship and their times of fellowship. Paul has already addressed in the first 10 chapters or so, he's addressed issues of food that have caused divisions. He's addressed issues of certain people in the church that have become figureheads that are kind of leading some division in the church. But now there's, there's almost this hint of, of a, like an obnoxious kind of snobbishness that, that Paul is bringing to their attention. And the main faction, the main division that he's really hitting at right here is this division between the rich and the not-so-rich. And what he's getting at is this mentality of me before you or this idea that somehow I am more important than you are. And this mentality was getting so bad that when the church gathered and then scattered, they would leave worse spiritually than when they came in. 
And so we can see how this could be a major, major problem within the church. Now, in these, in these verses that we just read, and we will read through again, Paul's tone becomes very harsh with the church at Corinth. And he's, he's dealing with, and what, what is really surrounding around is the Lord's Supper. You see, there are, there are several key issues that Paul's going to deal with directly that relate to the Lord's Supper before explaining kind of the what and how the Lord's Supper is to be done. And from this passage, what we're going to see is Paul's call to the Corinthians and a call to us to unity in Christ as we remember what he has done on our behalf and as we look forward to his second coming and we worship him instead of ourselves. So that's where we're going. Let's jump in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. That word praise there, in other translations, commend or applaud. So I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you or divisions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In the previous verses, as we saw last week, Paul had been commending, right? He had been applauding what the Corinthians were doing, and now he turns back to that harsh tone, and he says that he can no longer commend them. He cannot praise them for what they are doing because of how they are acting toward one another during these times of, of what is supposed to be this family type of fellowship and worship of Christ. He says, I cannot commend you because you are dividing yourselves. You are purposefully causing division within the church. Now, Paul is not upset just because there are these small differences or factions there within the body. I mean, after all, look, it's, it's expected that when you get a bunch of jacked up people in a room together, you're going to see some differences. Right? If, if I gave you 30 seconds to talk right now, you would find a lot of differences amongst yourselves. If it's the, the way you look, your personality, there's lots of differences. And Paul, Paul is what I like to call a realist. Right? Any pessimists out there? Pessimists? Anybody? Anybody? No? No one's owning up. Okay. Optimists? Optimists always raise their hand. Optimists? Yeah, there you are. Pessimists? I'll give you a second chance. Pessimists? Ah, there we go. Okay. Paul is what I like to call a realist. Now, a realist, oftentimes, you know, we, we get lumped in with you pessimists that are out there because, you know, we, we, we don't always find the positive silver lining in everything, even if there's a negative situation at hand, right? So we get lumped in and people just call us pessimists, but I like to think of Paul as a realist. He's calling it like it is, right? He called out the negatives. He called out the positives. He's moving back to the negatives now. That's not a pessimist. That's a realist. You optimists, we're realists, okay? <laughs> Quit talk, calling us pessimists. Nah, so Paul, Paul's calling it like he sees it, right? And, and he understands, he even expected that there were going to be some divisions. There's going to be differences when you get a bunch of people together. And he said that in verse 19. He says, there's, there must be factions among you. And Paul says that there must be differences and these differences don't necessarily split the church, but what they do is they make evident those who are truly genuine in their faith. 
David Pryor, one commentator, he, he says it this way. He says that faction provides an acid test of genuine commitment to Christ and to the body of Christ as distinct from religious bigotry or simply love of theological debate. So differences will actually show true character. When, when you are, have a difference of opinion than the person sitting next to you, how you react to that portrays who you really are. And what Paul is saying, he's saying that, listen, when there are divisions, when there are differences among you, that is going to show who truly is a follower of Christ and how they respond. Are they humble enough to think about you before themselves? Just because there are differences, though, does not necessarily mean that one of us is not a Christian. What Paul is really getting at is that though there are disagreements amongst us, it's that true character that comes out. And it's that true character that will one day be judged when you stand before the throne. You see, Paul is not naive. We are not naive to think that there will never, ever be disagreements amongst our church members, right? We, we understand that there are going to be differences and disagreements and opinions and preferences and, and whatever. We know that's going to happen, but division is not what we seek, right? Paul is not encouraging them to divide. What he's saying and what he's seeking to do is to remove division in order for them to become a unified body, See, Paul's not encouraging them to split up. He, what he's not saying is, okay, so, so you have this opinion and you kind of differ here and you differ here. So here's what we're going to do. You go down the street here and you plant this church. You go down the street that way and you plant that church. And you go over here, actually just set up across the street from him and plant this church. That's not what Paul's saying. Right? He is not seeking to divide them. He is actually calling them to unity. Here's what Paul's getting at. What he's getting at is that unity, unity is something that we have to fight for, right? Unity is something that we have to fight for. It does not just happen. Unity is not, when you get a group of people together, unity is not the natural trajectory of any group of people, right? It's easy for us, as I said earlier, to find differences between one another. Larry Osborne, he says this about unity. I love the way he puts it. He says, unity is the one thing that cannot be left to chance. Unity does not just happen. You have to work at it day after day. Because if you don't, it quickly slips away. And once it does, it won't matter how clear your vision is or how gifted your team is. When the foundation rots, it's not long until the whole house collapses. Now he's, he's addressing staff in, in a leadership team but that applies to all of us. If you are not fighting for unity, disunity is going to naturally come to pass. This past week, our, our staff had the opportunity to travel to St. Louis and, uh, and to take part and go to the Southern Baptist Convention. And while we were there, part of the, part of the business of, of the conference and convention was for us to elect a new president of the convention. Uh, one, of the, one of the men that was running... Uh, was our former pastor of the church, the Summit Church, that sent us out, uh, J.D. Greer. And he took us out to dinner the night before the vote, so we figured we should probably vote for him. Um, just kidding. He did take us out to dinner, and it was great. But 
It's not the only reason we were voting for him. Um, but either way, we did vote. And after voting, there were, there were three candidates. And after voting, none of the candidates had the majority vote. Right? You have to get 50 plus percent of the vote in order to win. Well, no one got the majority vote, so we had to vote again. So we voted, and after about four hours of waiting, we finally found out nobody got the majority vote. Between two guys, no one gets the majority vote. Not sure how that happens mathematically, but it did. So the, the next day, we were set out to vote a third time for two candidates, and something, something crazy happened. Something rather incredible happened. See, the night before the third vote, Pastor J.D. and Pastor Steve Gaines, Steve Gaines was the other guy running uh, with J.D., they met and they prayed together. And they sought counsel of other wise men. They sought the counsel of the Holy Spirit. And that next morning, what happened was not a third vote. What happened was that J.D. actually withdrew his name from candidacy for the sake of unity. Here's what he said about it. He said, through this whole process, I've been praying for unity. I know that Pastor Steve has as well. But if we go to a third vote and one of us wins by one half of 1%, it doesn't matter which of us it is, it's hard to see how that makes us a united body. We exist as a convention of churches because we believe that we can do more together than we can do apart. What keeps us from splitting into a thousand different directions is one thing, our unity in the gospel of Jesus. We stand together because God saved us, and we want to see him save others, whether that's in our neighborhoods or on the other side of the world. Essentially, these candidates got together, and they made a decision based on unity, unity in Christ. And they decided that unity in Christ was worth not winning a ballot. They decided that unity in Christ was more important than winning. Unity for the sake of the gospel was more important it was more important. The Corinthians had forgotten that. You see, the Lord's Supper was a time for the church family to come together as one. Paul says that they were not eating the Lord's Supper because there was no fellowship there with them. There was no unity because they were not fighting for it. Rather, in their indifference, they focused on their differences and because of that, there was no unity. There was no communion. There was no community. We have to fight for unity, and that unity comes from Christ. Verse 21. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. And a major issue that the Corinthians were dealing with, which we've actually seen previously in this book of Corinthians, was that they were putting themselves and they were putting their own preferences above one another's needs. You see, the, the meal that was being discussed here uh, that, that Paul's dealing with um, this was a common meal at the time, or um, a, a feast even, that was custom for the early church to partake in. And what would happen? Each member would bring something for the other members to share in. Right? Is this sounding familiar to some of you? This would be what we call a potluck dinner. 
Yeah, someone's really excited about potlucks. All right. So the issue, the issue though, that was happening here in Corinth, the issue was that the ones who brought more food, typically the wealthier members of the church, they would bring more food, but then they were taking more food. And, and those who weren't bringing as much weren't able to get any food. And so those, the wealthier members, would take more of the share, and essentially they would become gluttons and drunkards, while those who couldn't bring as much were left sitting there hungry. You see, the Corinthians were thinking about communion as a way to serve themselves. They were thinking about it in an individualistic mentality. Right? They were thinking about, how can I look out for number one? This is about me, instead of thinking about the family or the body around them. You see, communion, the Lord's Supper, this is a way for us to remember as a family, not just as an individual. It's a way for us as a family to worship Jesus and look forward to his return. The Corinthians, each each member was more concerned with satisfying his own hunger and his own thirst. In Paul's response to that, You know what he says? He says, essentially, if the purpose of coming together was to satisfy your physical hunger, stay home. Right? Stay home and eat. Eat before you come. Drink before you come. That way you are thinking about other people before yourselves. There seems to have been an insensitivity to the physical needs of the other members around them. Those who had very little. Almost to the point of humiliating them. You see, when they, when they came together, there was no sense of family. There was no sense of unity amongst them. While they did bring food for those to share, they would enjoy their own portions and leave others with nothing. The arrangement that was made emphasized their division and not their fellowship. So, so what is our response to this? How do we combat this individualistic mentality? Or another way, how do, we, how do we fight for unity? We do that by constantly reminding ourselves of this. Others before ourselves. Others before ourselves. We have to continually be reminded of others before ourselves. That is not the natural thought process that goes through our heads Right? We're always thinking about ourselves first. How can I look out for me? What can I get out of this? But we have to be reminded, in Christ, we are called to put others before ourselves. Are there differences? Yes, differences are inevitable. But there's absolutely no reason that these differences should cause division and affect our worship and fellowship of Christ. Jesus in his parables, and the way that he says this and the way that he simplifies it is by saying this, love your neighbor as yourself. Or in other words, put others above your own desires. We have to think about others first. Now this is not only related to our opinions, it's not only related to our preferences, but this has to do with the good of other people, right? So it's one thing to just say, okay, you can have your preference But it's another thing to think about the well-being of another person and seek their well-being above your own. And by well-being, I mean mental, spiritual, and physical well-being. 
You see, the Corinthians, they were not concerned with the well-being of one another. They, were, they had no concern for the hunger of those people around them. Those who could not or did not have a home at which to eat food. They had no concern for them. They had no compassion for them. They were more concerned about their own gain than of others. And they looked down on others as being less than them. They stuck their noses in the air and walked past them with a full plate while other people sat there starving. This, this is one of the reasons why we as a church do serve the city, right? Serve the city is something we do once a quarter. It's coming up soon. It's not the only reason it's in the sermon, but we do serve the city for this reason. Is it about Jesus? Absolutely, but it's also about loving our neighbors, specifically those that are in need. We're going to have a little family talk here for just a second. Sorry if your toes hurt at the end of this. A lot of our people, Bridge Church, back out of Serve the City. We think of it as a weekend that we get to take off. Go to the beach early, sleep in, have another day. Listen, I understand, I understand that, and I understand the temptation that's there, but Serve the City, that's not a weekend we just take off. It's, it's an opportunity for us to actually live out what we say that we believe, right? By, by putting the needs of other people before ourselves. So is the gospel word? Yes, absolutely. That's how the gospel moves forward. But the way that other people know that we believe what we say we believe is how we treat others around us. And so if you are actually living out your faith, it's going to speak louder sometimes than what you actually say. As James says, he says, faith without works is dead. They will know that you are a disciple by the way that you love one another. Do we love people enough to stop just giving lip service to what we say we believe and actually put some action to it? See, we want the Bridge Church, we want the Bridge Church to be a church where rich people, poor people, and everyone that does not look like you not only sit here in the same room, but we want them to worship together, hold hands together, and pray together. We want the Bridge Church to truly represent the church that Jesus died for, not what we prefer. Francis Schaeffer spoke a lot about this when, um, years ago, and he, he talked a lot about viewing other people as human first before anything else. Instead of looking at them as sinner or looking at them as poor or whatever, he said, he said no, you look at them as human. And what he meant by human was, was a person that is created in the image of God. He said, when you look at others, you, you should see them first as image bearer. When we see them as image bearer, this immediately attributes value to them because we see them as a creation, a precious creation of God. We don't see social status first. We see image bearer. We don't see sinner first. We see image bearer. And when we do this, this is what causes you to have compassion and love and be able to serve other people before your own needs. Here's, here's a practical way for you to think and, and apply this. When you show up here on Sunday morning or when you show up to a community group, or even to serve the city. What's your motive? What is your mentality in doing that? Do you show up here to say, what can I get out of today? I wonder what the preacher has for me today. I wonder what the community group is going to talk about so that I can benefit. How can I make myself look good by serving others? Or are you more concerned about what others get? Are you coming in here thinking, man, I just need a little pick-me-up? 
Or you coming in here saying, man, I, I really want to serve those around me. I want to show someone else the love of Christ. I want to pray with other people. I want to call people to worship Jesus today. One of our, one of our staff said this, it really convicted me. He said, he said, when's the last time you turned down a gift because you thought it would be more beneficial for somebody else to have? I thought, I said, man, I'd, I'd probably just take it because I think it's cool to have or, you know, wow, that's really generous for somebody else to give it to me when I don't necessarily need it. When I know that there's probably somebody else that could benefit a lot more than I could. Verse 23. Paul continues and he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, the whole reason Paul has been discussing these things is because the Corinthians have been acting out of order as it related to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is, is what has commonly become known and what we call communion. And what Paul's doing, Paul is calling them back to and reminding them of the purpose of communion. Right? So, so these, these verses here explain to us what is the purpose of communion. Paul explains that the tradition of communion was instituted by Jesus himself. And Jesus then passed that down to his disciples. See, he repeats Jesus' words from the night as he sat with his disciples, and he was anticipating the forthcoming betrayal and crucifixion. Jesus takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he passes it to his disciples. And he said that the bread represented his body, and that his body is for you. Jesus' body, like the bread, was broken for you. His body was beaten, it was bruised, it was literally broken in pieces on our behalf. You see, when we decided to rebel against God, that rebellion needed a retribution. A retribution to an eternal crime is an eternal death, an eternal separation from God. And you see, we could not work our way out of this. This is not something that we could attain for ourselves. This, the only way was to have perfection stand in our place. And that perfection was Jesus, God in the flesh. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. And he traded places with us. His body took on the punishment that you and I deserved. He stood in our place as our retribution. And he was broken so that you and I did not have to be. Amen. Then Jesus took the cup and he passed it, saying that this is the new covenant in my blood. Through Jesus' blood being shed for us, a new covenant is formed. It is now possible for Jew and Greek, male and female, poor or rich, to have the freedom of forgiveness that is offered through Jesus' sacrifice. He says that anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord, who repents and believes, anybody who does it can have salvation. And this new covenant, this new covenant represents multiple things, but one of the things it represents is the church as well. You see, as one enters into this new covenant, as one repents and believes and lays down their life, they are immediately 
immediately grafted into a covenant with one another. When you become a Christian, you are in a new family automatically. You don't get to choose that. When you say, I believe that Jesus has done everything necessary for my salvation, you're in the family and you don't get to choose us. We're yours and you're ours. That is this new covenant that he's talking about. You see, the Corinthians were ignoring and they were undermining this by the way that they were behaving. You see, for them, the death of Christ was not central. The return of Christ did not dominate what they were thinking, and the love of Christ was not in control of their lives. And as Paul stated earlier, he called them out and he said, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. There is no family there among you. Some of you here today, that, that could be the first time you've ever heard what Jesus has done for you. Jesus' body was broken. It was shattered. He was hung on a cross on your behalf. He stood in your place so that you and I could stand in right relationship with God. And if that's you today, if you've never believed that, I want to challenge you to think on that, and I call you to repentance. Repent and believe. Say that you know and you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary. And when you do that, you get to join this family. Church, communion was instituted for us. Communion was instituted. It was given to us as a family to gather together as one to worship and remember what Christ did on our behalf and to look forward to the day that he returns or calls us home. The Corinthians had forgotten that. Bridge Church, we must never, never forget that. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Finally, Paul explains the heart of communion. The heart or the attitude of communion. In these verses, Paul tells these Corinthians, and he tells us the attitude and the heart that we should have as we approach communion. And he warns us about the abuses of communion and the serious repercussions that would happen if you do not take communion serious. He says that you must examine yourself to not take communion in an unworthy manner. Now, communion, or unworthy manner could mean a few things here, but what, what he's really getting at and, and what he's telling them is uh, what it could simply mean is coming in an irreverent way or in a disrespectful way or perhaps for some even in a sinful way. If you come in an unworthy manner, there will be repercussions as you are then sinning against the Lord. This is why we say before we receive communion, we oftentimes say, at your own time. At your own time, what we're getting at is this self-examination. This, 
This is something that each one of us should be doing before we get up to get communion. We should sit and we should pray and we should examine our hearts. One commentator, he he says it this way. He says, by self-examination, the believer guards against eating and drinking to his own judgment through not recognizing the importance of the supper that commemorates the death of Christ. This self-examination is something that should be done as a way to make sure that your heart is in the right place prior to getting up and taking and receiving communion. Another way that we, we like to refer to communion, we, we refer to communion as, as what we like to call the great equalizer. The great equalizer. What, what we mean by that is that there's not separate lines. We might have multiple stations, but there are no separate lines to get to those. And by that, what I mean is that there, there's not a line here for the rich and a line there for the poor or a line here for this ethnicity or that one or, or whatever have you. There's, there's not one for the young and the old and the in-between. No. Communion is the great equalizer. And what it does is it reminds us that we all started the same way. We all started as, as created, as image bearers of God, and we all then rebelled. We all fell short of the glory of God, and thus we were all in need of a Savior. And Jesus became what we needed for us on our behalf. And so we all become one. We are all then on the same playing field and we are unified as one family. And in just a few moments, we are going to receive communion. But before we do that, I want you to take the next minute or two minutes or or whatever you need to examine yourself. I want you to take the next few moments to think, to pray, and to do a little self-examination. Is there something that you need to say to God? Is there something that you need to say to another member of the body? This would be the time to do that. This is the time to go to somebody and, and maybe seek forgiveness or grant forgiveness. Perhaps you need to step out and make a phone call or text somebody to make sure that your heart is in the right place before getting up to receive communion. And then, when you are ready, there will be stations here at the front, there will be stations in the back. Yes, there's gluten-free in the corner. But when you are ready, if you are a follower of Christ and you have examined your heart, then come and receive communion. And if you are not a Christian here today, I want you to do the same thing. I want you to examine your heart. Listen to how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you during this time. But until you become a Christian, communion is not for you. Communion, for you to take communion, would be for you to drink judgment upon yourself. And instead of doing that, sit and ponder and think about the words of the gospel. and Think about what Christ has done on your behalf. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray to close us. And I want you to take this time of the next couple minutes, we'll have someone playing music. Take this time to examine your heart. And then when you are ready, you come forward and you receive and you remember what Jesus has done on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Lord Jesus, we praise your name. We thank you for the sacrifice, for the fact that your body was broken, that your blood was spilt on our behalf. Thank you for doing everything necessary to save us. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts. Show us 
Show us where our hearts are wrong right now. Call those to repentance who need to be called. Lord Jesus, this is your church. This is your family. This is your bride. May we remember you in all things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.